0: Hello there. It's still now.
1: Yes, I've just passed the time in between episodes by cancelling a baby, which gave me five minutes relief. You cancelled a baby? No, I didn't really cancel a baby. It's in one of the poems we're going to talk about, so let's do that. So, welcome, welcome, one and all, or at the very least, one and some, to the second of our two episodes where we're talking to Lise Dine about her new poetry collection, What to Miss When, and some of the surrounding issues.
0: Yes, indeed. I'm your host, Dr. Adam James Smith.
1: And I'm your host, Dr. Joe War.
0: And I'm a senior zookeeper at the GW Zoo in Wynwood, Oklahoma. And Joe is a senior zookeeper at Big Cat Rescue in Tampa, Florida.
1: And this is the podcast Smith and War Talk About Tigers, a show in which we discuss the form, function, future and history of tigers in a desperate bid to amass quantifiable carrion for our tigers.
0: Now that's not true is it and the show's called Talk About Satire and we have after quantifiable impact for our research but could it be a metaphor?
1: Could it be a metaphor if we consider that our research is sort of nothing more really than heaps of rotting meat that we throw to the tigers of the ref to stave off unemployment then maybe it is some kind of a intensely clever and satirical metaphor but we didn't come up with the idea of tiger king as a metaphor for anything Lee Stein did and I have to say on balance I think she did it better and we're going to talk to her about that and much else besides in a moment Adam, we've talked about Tiger King on the podcast before and I explained the basic premise to you how it's a Disney film with an Elton John song in it. Have you watched Tiger King?
0: I've seen some of it.
1: Have you? Uh, What did you think to it?
0: um, I thought it was interesting. I thought, you know, so I came to it much, much later than everybody else. Like, I watched it at Christmas. So I watched it about six months after everybody else. So mostly I watched it thinking, why is everyone obsessed with this? And but also because I didn't care about it at all, I'd remain relatively unspoiled. So when it uh, when Carol Baskin gets dead, spoiler for anyone who's not seen it,
1: she doesn't like that one, get
0: dead. Doesn't she get murdered?
1: No, um, I thought she died,
0: and then the whole thing is like, did they kill her?
1: No, it's like he he hires a hitman on her, I think.
0: Right. Um, yeah, she's, she's alive. alive. Oh, so yeah, I didn't get very far into it, as you can see. <laughs> Okay. I thought he killed her. I thought he killed her and fed her to lions. Tigers. Yeah, I watched it at Christmas. watched about three episodes of it and I was into it. I was watching it with my parents at Christmas and um, it, was a, it was a whole thing for an evening and then I never got around to watching it again after that because I couldn't be bothered. Also, uh, I watched the Louis through one. I watched Louis through. I didn't watch Tiger King in the pandemic, but something I did loads of is listen to it millions and millions of hours of podcasts. Yeah. And Louis Threw was on the Adam and podcast talking about the podcast that he then went on to do BBC Sounds when he's reflecting on old cases and he talks about Tiger King. So then I watched Louis Threw on Tiger King. And by the time I'd seen that, I was like, I feel like I've had enough of this now. Yeah. Also, I'll just wait for the film with Nicolas Cage.
1: So I um I sort of watched it a bit when it was on. You were into it, weren't you? I thought you not were not massive. It. No, I I watched it. I watched it a bit when it was on because um, everyone was watching it, and also I was a bit interested because I'd already come across Joe, Joe Exotic in Louis Theroux's original documentary with him. And then at Christmas there was a Louis Theroux like, let's go back to him and talk about the making of the original show, which is kind of like what they did with him after everything came out about Jimmy Savile, and they went back to Louis Theroux and they were like, you did that documentary. What did you make of him? He's like in a strange way I kind of liked him you know you were like in a, in an odd way but I always thought there was something kind of weird about him sorry
0: I was just trying to do my Louis Through impression
1: well that's what I was doing
0: yeah it's just he it was very good yeah
1: in the in the Christmas one they went back to him and it's like that classic you know all the classic Louis Through tropes where he's like he'll ask something ridiculously invasive or whatever and they'll be like we are done here. Get out. Get out of my backyard. Turn that goddamn camera off. Get out. I don't, no, I, I am not joking. I don't want... Are you okay right now? Have I upset you? Get out. And turn that camera off. Oh, you seem like you're kind of mad right now. And... But anyway, so that was on at Christmas. And I was trying to remember what had even happened in Tiger King back in the spring. Because it just seemed so long ago. And I remember saying, like, so what? What was the deal with Carol Baskin? Was she... Like, was she good or or what what was it with her and um one of my kids was like well she kind of was because she's his enemy but also she low-key murdered her husband so um yeah
0: that was the murder yeah I knew there was a murder yeah yeah
1: Carol Baskin low-key murdered her husband and I I just really like (laughs) Uh, I think it I think the idea is that there's a low-key idea that she did rather than that she murdered him in a low-key way. I say, how would you murder somebody in a low-key way to sort of like scratch away at them over a period of decades with a with a pin until they eventually died? And then you would have low-key murdered them, whereas high key murdering somebody would be just blowing their brains out.
0: Yeah, that's um that's hilarious.
1: Yeah, so uh, that's that's Tiger King established and uh, the reason we're going to talk about that is because it's the title of one of the poems that we talk about in some detail and the way in which Lee sees parallels between the dynamics of the operations of the GWZ in Winwood, Oklahoma, and the ways in which the general populace is kind of baying for its rotten meat throughout the, the pandemic. Um, so yeah. yeah there's there's a bit of context what other context do we need to do
0: i think that's that, that's the only context isn't it for this episode
1: well i mean i suppose that she's also talking about laurie moore oh yeah um,
0: sorry i forgot about that yeah
1: the the controversy surrounding laurie moore at one particular moment comes up in the interview but yeah laurie moore i i love laurie moore and um, it was really nice to see her name popping up in a poem she's written a novel that um all English lit lecturers should read and enjoy called Anagrams which is about a a woman who's lecturing in a community college and lecturing poetry to undergraduates and that's got some very relatable moments in. Lots of really witty short stories, a coming of age novel called Who Will Run the Frog Hospital which is utterly brilliant on 15 year old girls' friendships with one another and I would say much of Laurie Moore's work is also laced through with satirical slant one of the most delightful things I've read that Laurie, uh, Laurie Moore, Laurie through, uh, that Laurie Moore wrote, I can't remember if this is in one of her novels or I think it's in one of her short stories. And she just has this really brief moment where she, this, this character is also a lecturer and she says like she gets so frustrated with her students, she hands them like a good essay and tells them to stand in the corridor until they can understand why it's better than what they've written, um, which, <laughs> which I like.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, she. Did, so, so for someone who we've established is delightful, mm. why, why is she brought into that bullshit?
1: Well, we talk about this in the thing, don't we?
0: All right, okay, yeah. So that's all the context. So should we get back into this interview?
1: Let's get back into the interview.
0: Okay, roll the tape.
1: Covid's put class under the microscope, as we said before. But there've been other there've been other flare ups through the year, um, and one of the things that pops up in two different poems in this collection, in Stockpile and in American History, is the whole Karen business. And there, there have been lots of lots of viral Karens, particularly over the last year. And I know it it didn't arrive with Covid, but it seems like Karening and the Karen meme. Have gained a lot of traction in this in this last year or so, and, and I'm just really interested to hear you talk about that because I suppose again because of the connections with self care, where you're talking about the ways in which women are are represented, the ways in which women judge one another, and sort of contradictions within feminism. So yeah, can you can you talk a bit about Karen's and your poems?
2: I am of the. Uh... I'm of the team, I think, that thinks Karen is a way to call a a woman a bitch, that you're not allowed to say bitch anymore, but you're allowed to call someone a Karen. And I think um, white women in America, white women in America have a lot of influence, power. I mean, feminism has, has given us a lot. The feminist movements have given us a lot. We have a lot of Rights and power, and so which makes us target for criticism. I think Um, we're not marginalized, um, so and I'm counting myself among the white women. So I think like it's easy to make fun of the girl bosses. I've made fun of the girl bosses. She's like a 30 something um, mostly white woman entrepreneur, she has a lot of status, money, power, easy to make fun of her. Karen, um, she could be a mom. She's a little older than a girl boss. She might be 40 something. Um, She might feel entitled. I think it started as like this, you know, I'm going to call the manager on you, which is like this very um, complainer energy. Um, But instead of seeing her as empowered, we now see her as a figure uh, to deride. And that she's abusing her power as a Karen. So I use it ironically in the poems. I mean, I'm, I'm being kind of tongue in cheek about a Karen and whether I'm a Karen. I don't think I'm technically old enough to be a Karen. But as with everything on the internet, like things take on, you know, there's like things take on so many different meanings. It's never totally clear if someone else using the word means exactly what you're using the word. But I definitely think it's an... It's an insult or it's a um, word that's used ironically in the same way I see girl boss used only ironically among my peer group no one no one I know would use girl boss sincerely uh, to describe anything so it's just become a shorthand. And I watched this um, Bo Burnham Netflix uh, special. Did you guys see this?
0: I haven't seen it yet, but one of our, someone in our research unit keeps telling me to watch it because it's really hysterical, isn't it?
2: It's so interesting. So he's like extremely talented. He... He writes songs, he sings, he plays the keyboards, he acts, he he wrote and directed the whole thing in lockdown in the same way I wrote a poetry book in lockdown, but he's so self-conscious of himself as a straight white man. He has to make so many apologies that he's even able to make this. It's, it's very, it was very hard for me to watch, but then he makes this hilarious parody video of white women on Instagram, which people keep sending me and it's very funny, but I thought, oh, here's the one group like you're allowed to make fun of as a straight white man you can make fun of the white girl boss too you can make fun of the the influencers so i feel like a karen or a girl boss is like um it's just it's just open range for anybody to um parody them it's almost like i better give myself a, a better challenge for my next book because it's like it's too easy it's too easy i've got um, if I wanna take a risk, I, I have to find something else to make fun of.
1: Well, oh, have you got any, have you got a list of candidates? <laughs>
2: I'm I'm starting to research TikTok potentially oh, nice. for my next book and it is, I have to force myself to watch TikTok videos. It's so not like my natural um, mode. I also feel so old as I watch TikTok videos. I feel ancient. I feel like Mitch McConnell as I watch TikTok videos.
1: I need TikTok kind of curating for me. So if like, if one of my kids says, oh watch this one it's really funny then I it it is but I I wouldn't be able to just go on TikTok and find the good stuff I don't think and I wouldn't that would actually
2: be like a very lucrative gig for a Gen Z
1: to um curate curate for your
2: your elders
0: yeah 10 TikTok videos you need to watch now and two that you definitely don't Yes. yes yeah
1: I'll suggest it to them.
0: I mean, that Bo Burden thing's interesting. One of the people we interviewed last year was someone called Ollie Grant, who wrote a satirical, it was, again, it was like a satirical self-help book, wasn't it? And right. it was called How to Live Well, the North Korean Way. And we were like, why did you Why did you pick North Korea as the target? And part of it was he was parodying this whole idea of nations marketing their own identity. Like, what's the Danish one called?
1: Huga. Huga.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of like Huga, but what if it was North Korea? <laughs> uh,
1: That's but then funny. He did say,
0: um, but he said, like, North Korea was basically the only target he'd dare... Uh, make fun of right yeah but that's safe yeah but the Karen thing like that really took off because I hadn't heard of it and then I heard people talking about it in quite a rarefied way you know like so Julie Bindle explaining there's a difference between Karen in America and Karen in the UK but I hadn't really heard it used and then suddenly almost overnight it seemed like people were using it students were saying it. it was like oh, this character such Karen.
2: I also think it's connected to this statistic that was oft cited after the 2016 election that 52% of American women voted for Trump. Which drives me nuts because it isn't fifty two percent of American women that voted for Trump. It's fifty. It's actually forty seven percent of the fifty nine percent of the Americans that voted. You know, voted for Trump. So it's a it's a slice of a slice. Um, but just this this shock that so many white women would go for Trump over Hillary Clinton, as if they if they as if they betrayed their kind, if they betrayed women by voting for him.
1: That that is like the statistic around American elections that that you hear most often, isn't it? That's the thing that people seem to be most interested in, The those bloody white women putting Trump in the White House. All your faults, white women. Yeah. That's right.
2: Is there a class, I think there is like a class connotation to Karen. I don't see it being used. Is it used towards wealthy women? I mean, it's used, I'm trying to remember like they're. There was a couple last summer, I think in Missouri during the Black Lives Matter protests who like stood outside their compound, like holding guns and like, you know, she was a little chubby. To me, it has this very like middle of America, like lower middle class um, connotation to it.
1: that's, That's what I always understood it to be that a Karen was kind of upper middle, upper working, lower middle class yeah not particularly wealthy and not particularly kind of socially elevated but then I wondered if that some some discussions that I've heard suggest that that's the British Karen and the American Karen is 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 wealthy and powerful but it sounds from what you're saying like not so much but yeah I I don't I when I first came across it I I thought exactly as you describe and I think that in the UK as well, the name Karen like it's not a posh name, right? It's right. But like being called Octavia or something. <laughs> um, Could
2: an Octavia be a Karen? That's the question of the day.
1: I'm going to say no. I agree. I think yeah, she she just she might be like a posh bitch or something but I think she wouldn't be called a Karen
2: yeah it's hard like the 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 wealthy I mean I feel like there's like there's like a smooth way that they handle you know their their transgressions or they have staff to uh yell at the uh underlings or whatever they wouldn't they wouldn't call the manager
1: themselves yeah and Karens are also I think distinctive for the fact that they like they lose control and they lose their temper that's right. whereas that you're kind of posher um Octavia's uh, might be might be expected to be more characterized by a sort of a control and a coldness even. Whereas Karen, Karen makes herself look stupid because she loses her rag, I think.
2: Right. A Karen is stupid enough to lose her temper when someone's filming her on their cell phone camera. I mean, that's really yeah. where these things go viral. It's some white woman freaking out on camera. Yeah. For yeah. us To
1: laugh at it's so many things in one isn't it because it's it's yeah it's women who who aren't in control of themselves women who complain and but it's also because it's unlike girl boss where you can say like well there are two things that a girl boss has to be and that's female and a boss so like we can we can like circumscribe it to that extent but karen is so beautifully loose and nebulous that any annoying woman can be a karen any and the fear of being labelled a Karen is enough to to keep you quiet, I think, in a lot of instances. So right. yeah, I think Girlboss has more traction or is more reasonable than Karen for sure. On that on that note, should we talk about cancel culture? Yeah, why not? Yeah. So yeah, in in Tiger King, which I really, I mean, yeah, there's so many of these poems I really love, but you, Tiger King's got it all because it's got Laurie Moore and Tiger King and cancel culture and the brilliant line, "We'd cancel a baby if it gave us five seconds of relief." Um, I I love Laurie Moore, but I haven't come across this um her saying that she finds President Trump's voice reassuring. That little flare-up must have not quite made it in the same way across across here. But um, so you, you you're referring to an interview where she she specifically says, doesn't she, not the words, just his voice. I find it reassuring. So yeah, I'd really I'd really like to hear some more about that about that poem, about the whole incident, and and also the connection between all of that flare-up and the insanity that was Tiger King.
2: So I love Lori Moore. I mean, she's like one of the reasons I became a writer. She's from the Midwest. She's very funny. I mean, I think she captures the, the passive aggression of the Midwest um, so perfectly. I, I love her and I look up to her as an elder, but among my peers, um, I don't think Lori Moore is very cool anymore. <laughs> um, He's a Karen, I think now. Oh. <laughs> but um, this was just like a Saturday on Twitter in the midst of the pandemic a new article of the New Yorker came out, which I may be the only person in her thirties who still subscribes to the print magazine, the New Yorker. I mean, when I read the New Yorker, I see ads for adult diapers. So that tells you something about who's reading the New Yorker. Um, And there was just this piece by Lori Moore that they printed in the magazine about her finding Donald Trump's voice reassuring. And it was like a mini drama on Twitter just for a day. It didn't even last the weekend. It was just like one day's worth of drama And I thought, like, we're all so bored, like we're all inside, we're all in our homes. We've binge watched Tiger King, we've seen every episode of Tiger King, there's no more episodes left. What are we going to watch next? We've already seen The Sopranos. And so these, these flames spark on the internet and it gives us something to all focus our attention on until tomorrow when there's a, you know, a new main character online. So. Tiger King is like this, it starts out, you think it's gonna be like a fun show about these like guys who keep tigers and then it takes this really dark turn. So I don't know if I can recommend it, but these tigers to feed all these exotic animals, they get expired meat from Walmart that Walmart can't sell anymore because it would make people sick and they buy it in bulk and they feed it to the tigers. And I thought this is all of us, we're just these hungry tigers prowling our cages and Lori Moore throw, threw us some expired meat that we could that we could fight over on Twitter for 24 hours. Um, so that's what I was kind of trying to combine in that poem. But there, there's going to be people who read this who have no memory of Lori Moore saying this. Um, but um, I think because I make the connection, that it, it'll still make sense even if you don't remember.
1: It's bizarre, isn't it? Because that is the way you're kind of describing Tiger King. There, it's like an oven-ready metaphor, right? But yet we were all <laughs> devouring Tiger King, or lots of us were. Um I think I think most people I know watched it, without even realizing that we were the tigers prowling the cages looking for looking for the next thing. Yeah, I can't it seems it seems astounding, doesn't it? And and again, like an extra layer of irony is that she said not his words, just his voice. And then they've read not her words, just the fact that Trump's in there in the mix and that she hasn't said that the phrase she said wasn't like President Trump is a an um, egregious human being. But the fact that any, any element of positivity was anywhere near his name. Right. So the whole like not the words thing is really ironic, isn't it?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, well, I think this was, I think the New Yorker was publishing some kind of, it was like, you know, reflections of the ongoing pandemic. So it was like a little series and there were different writers talking all about their different pandemic experiences. And this was her contribution. Uh, But the way the internet, I mean, this is what the internet does is it says that's correct or that's incorrect. It's like a binary. Lori Moore did not say the correct thing in her piece. And so we all have to uh, talk amongst ourselves. Did you see that she said the incorrect thing? Yes, I did. She she said the incorrect thing. And that's the di- that's the discourse. That's the level yeah. of conversation we're having. And it's I just wondered,
0: I mean this wasn't a pre-pre planned question, but it's just occurred to me whilst we've been talking, what's sort of your relationship to the contemporary poetry scene? Because there is a lot of contemporary poetry that's very confessional, it's very personal. There's a lot of it that strays over into activism. There's a lot of it there's a lot of contemporary poetry where you, if you sort of say the right thing, you're enormously successful. And what do you think about contemporary poetry and where do you see yourself amidst it?
2: There are a lot, there's a lot of contemporary poetry that I read and love. I loved um, Jenny Zhang's collection, My Baby First Birthday, which is also a lot about um, class. Um, And it's very angry and raw and wild. It's like, there are no rules in this book. I really like that. Um, Ariana Raines, I really like. Um, But in terms of the poetry community, the living like amoeba, the the thing that has mass, it's it's by default um, like a social justice activism movement, and it has become increasingly so since I was last active. So I would definitely say I've become less active as I as I just got more involved in prose writing over the last decade. But when I compare um, the scene in the early, let's say the the late aughts, early 2010s, when I was really active to today, um, it's it's extremely activistic. Is that a word?
1: (laughs) Sounds like it should be.
2: Um, (laughs) um, So it's like there isn't an option to write poetry that's not political, but all poetry by default is political. And when I think about that, I think, do I agree with that? I don't know. I think some of my poems, you could say some of my poems are political. But um, if I'm writing in the voice of an influencer, like, is that a political poem? I don't know. I, I just, I don't know if I can get behind the idea that all art or all poetry is political or should be political. But that's the, that's the MO.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because I mean, there's the, again, going back to outside time, it starts with you saying like, I'm not going to say about trees, <laughs> Which is, whereas like critical poetry is a boom industry, but you're kind of like, that's not what I'm doing. Sorry, it's, there's something different. <laughs>
2: And that poem's like this joke, 10 years ago, like at a poetry reading, I read a poem about Facebook and this stranger came up to me and he said, aren't you worried like your poems are not going to be relevant in the future because you're writing, like this isn't going to exist. And now look at, look at what Facebook has done to us. So I'm, I'm pushing back against this idea that writing about the internet is going to make my work dated. There's all, I've heard this multiple times. I've heard this with my novel too. Some of the reviews of self-care say this was dated, but it was funny. And I think, but what, what makes it dated? Like it's set in 2017, like that time period existed. <laughs> like we lived through the time period. Are my COVID poems going to be dated? Like I'm trying to capture a moment. That's my intention. I'm not trying to capture the universality of trees. Like that's what Mary Oliver writes. She writes about trees and like the sounds of the loons. I'm not a very, I'm not a very outside person, hence the poem Outside Time, where I had to go outside. But I'm not a very outside person. And I, yeah, I'm not writing about trees.
0: I mean, that's like, um, Alexa, to bring it back to the 18th century, like Alexander Pope in the Dunciad, which is like the masterwork of 18th century satire. And he's talking about specific, he's got specific complaints with what's happening in the pamphlet wars of his time. And he's picking on specific people and, you know, folks like me spend a long time trying to reconstruct the context to work out precisely who he's talking about. But that doesn't mean that there aren't these lines that are that capture a universal truth or that that are have their own profundity the fact that it's enmeshed in its moment doesn't stop it from you know having worth 300 years later it's still still funny even if you don't know who like these people are necessarily Um, that's such
2: a great example and like when i would go back to like emily dickinson's poetry emily dickinson who famously uh did not spend much time outside either. (laughs) She was inside her house, but she was following news of the war and she was writing about the civil war was happening even though she was inside her house. And would we say like those poems are dated? No, you know, the way she wrote about grief was very specific to the time and it has resonance today. Yeah. But all this, like, I mean, you know, all this human drama, like all the stuff that's happening on Twitter, just because it's happening on Twitter, that's just like the platform where it's happening. That's the arena. But it's people gossiping. It's people yeah. arguing with each other. It's people hurting each other's feelings. This is all universal fodder. I'm just, I'm just choosing the the backdrop.
0: Yeah. I mean, we start. So we started by talking about the use of voice in the collection, and sort of Joe observed that there might be a master voice, but you're adopting these different voices. But also, you said, do you say that it, you think of it as being kind of like post-confessional? I mean, the, the use of voice, the satirical use of voice, is a well-established thing, um, but. It, in my 18th century stuff it's a really risky thing because so for instance someone I work on super obscure local poet where I am a guy called James Montgomery wrote satirical poems in is in the local newspaper and one of them is called the slave trade and he basically it's against the slave trade but to make the point he adopts the voice of an advocate of the slave trade and then sort of like extends it so you have lines where it's like Uh, you know, how stupid you'd have to be to believe these people have a soul, like we could make a lot of money here. And all you have to do is overlook 100,000 tears and all of this stuff. And he sort of pushes it to the point where it's obscene and disgusting. And you're like, wow, if anyone said that, like, if you think this, obviously, you're an idiot. So let's get rid of the slave trade. But it's a difficult text to teach, because everyone's like, whoa, this is, that's horrific. Like why would, that's really offensive and horrific and dehumanizing. Yes, it's dehumanizing. It's, that's the whole point is that it would be dehumanizing to have this opinion. So it's difficult for some people to recognize that he's constructed this voice and to separate it from his own voice, particularly seeing as he did also write a lot of autobiographical poems. So did you, when you're doing these poems, do you ever worry that people won't be able to dis- distinguish where the boundaries are between autobiographically and, satirical mask and does that even matter?
2: Well, this is making me think like, I want to ask you more about this because this is making me think of like our Twitter DM where we said like, oh, they like, people don't know what irony is anymore. Like, is it, has internet content been so dumbed down that we read, our, I mean, we read all day long. I'm scrolling all day long. I'm clicking links, I'm reading, I'm reading, but I'm reading in this very superficial way where I want to get the point immediately. And I read everything as literal, that do you do you think like your students are like they have to be trained, they have to be trained to look for irony? Like the line about a hundred thousand tears, like that it's
0: it's
1: deliberately so evil that it's funny. Yeah. I think I think yes it's often about irony. And I think also this is this is just like an emerging theory that I've been thinking about recently, is like the prevalence of the first person narrative and the popularity of the first person narrative. Like, my, almost all children's books published in the last 10, 15 years, I think, are in the first-person narrative. The vast majority of... You, I, I mean, this is this is impressionistic based on stuff that like my kids read or I read, read to them. Young adult fiction tends to be in the first-person narrative, and you're invited to kind of invest in that character who's telling the story. First-person narrative seems to be, like, where it's at. And so maybe as a consequence of that, people get confused about, like, a narrative voice that isn't straightforwardly, oh, let me tell you my story and can you suspend your disbelief and believe in me as a person that you can relate to for the duration of this of this narrative. And so there's a, there seems to me sometimes to be, like, a default expectation that the person telling you the story is to be taken at face value, can be trusted, um, is what they purport to be, and is probably pretty much essentially also the actual author who wrote it. Because why would the author write that if they didn't think that? Why would they pretend to be someone they're not? It's that there's a preference, I think, for the the confessional and the personal and the almost complete overlap between writing voice and author. And so, and then I think if if you put into the mix, there's a kind of, the fact there's a kind of resistance to irony and a, tendency to take things terribly seriously and terribly literally and like you know so I feel I feel like it's a combination of those things like so we were talking all of us weren't we about like why don't people get irony and I have been wondering if it's also to do with fashionable styles of narrative but I've been talking for too long so
2: that's so interesting that you're even tracing it to children's books that it, that it starts so early, the first person. I've always written in the first person. It's very comfortable for me to write in the first person. I, I have a hard time writing in the third person. Someday maybe I'll, it's like something I aspire to, like to be able to write in the third person. It doesn't come naturally. But when I think about, you know, like, um like a Charles Dickens novel where there's like this omniscient narrator kind of watching the scene or even John uh, Jonathan Franzen.
1: But then in self care, you've got first person, but you've got, you know, you're moving through different different first people it's it's not like here is Maren and she is essentially like trust her voice and also she's essentially me and you know where you are with this book right
2: oh I was going to say um because I I've also studied and taught memoir writing and I'm really interested in Vivian Gornick and Vivian Gornick's theory is that the rise of memoir writing comes from holocaust testimony in the mid-20th century that all these people who survived felt like they had to tell the story of what happened to them. There was all this testimony and it was first person. And it was like all these unbelievable stories. And that led to the rise of memoir with all these people saying, well, I have an incredible story as well. Something incredible happened to me. And this is also around the time of the confessional poets. So there was something, it's very personal. It's very, not raw in the writing, but raw in terms of maybe, um, you know, experiences we hadn't heard about before, like about mental illness or suicide. but that has to go somewhere. Like the unfiltered confession um, that's not crafted into something else. You can read those all day on Instagram. They're in the Instagram captions. You can read them on Twitter. I mean, people tell these traumatic stories of things that have happened to them. They've lost people to COVID. I mean, there's just this, It's the whole internet is, is a confessional, it's ongoing. So with my work, with my writing, I'm trying to create something that goes beyond the confessional that has something else. And I think another thing Mary Carr would say when she's talking about memoir writing is she's like, you have to come up with the voice that can have a range. So if this book was only funny, how would I, what would I say? I wrote a hilarious book about the pandemic. I mean, people would be like, you did what? So I had to find a voice that had enough range because there are some poems that are sad or that have more emotional depth. And there are poems that are funnier. So I, I created this persona that could, I hope, kind of hold that range of experience and range of emotion on the page.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder why where is irony gone? And there's, a, there's something to do with truth and authenticity, isn't there? On the one hand, there's a skepticism about some thing, like this isn't authentic enough, but then also a tendency to read everything as being 100% authentic truth. And it doesn't really fit very well with autobiography or biography or life writing. I mean, I've just recently finished an article about Virginia Woolf and Orlando. And for that, I read a lot about her new, her essay, New Biography, and her positions on biography and historiography. And she's sort of reacting to this Victorian trend of biography, which had a moral imperative. So they'd only tell the stories of worthy people. And the premise being that if you read this biography, you'll learn a moral lesson from it. And she said that suffocated the subjects and led to like really boring, dull biographies. And what she wanted was to capture she said it's about balancing fact, but also personality. She said like a good autobiography or biography has to be both the rainbow and granite. Like it's got to have both of those things. And the that's way- so great. Yeah. And her sort of conclusion is, I don't. I hope Wolf scholars agree with me, but her conclusion is basically fictionality. Like you've got to bring some play into it. Like it's not about pre- precisely trying to reenact something that you could never objectively do, but it's about finding like... she sort of talks about like fragments of conversation or like what other people thought being more impressionistic to try and capture the an essence of what someone was like to try and capture that personality and I guess creating a persona that allows you to visit sort of memories and specific moments but also with enough ironic distance for it all to work is kind of similar to what she was doing.
2: Yeah, what's the, the the Wordsworth line about poetry? It's like a, a emotion recollected in tranquility or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that uh, you
2: need that hindsight. Like you can't you can't write a poem while you're crying. Yeah, <laughs> but maybe you can write about it later.
0: What's your favorite poem in the collection?
2: What's my favorite? Oh my god, my favorite poem is of course no one's favorite poem. My favorite poem is the um, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls um, last dance poem that compares him to Achilles. Why that one? I just think it's like so epic. I'm like, I wrote an epic poem. Like, I just feel so proud of my of my epic poem, and it's about like different personality types, which come from Gretchen Rubin's self help book. Yeah. Um. To me, it just has it all, but but no one has no one has picked out my favorite. But that's that's life. It's the same in self care. My favorite lines, no one ever you know picks out picks them out. So
0: has anybody read this literally? Have you had that? Have people read this and thought this is Lee Stein? describing her life.
2: Well, I had that one Q&A earlier this week. She said, you know, you, you bring a lot of yourself in here, just like you did in your first novel. And I thought, well, how do you know? <laughs> you know, how do you know what's what's myself? And it's it's hard because, you know, I have written memoir. I, I do write personal essays. Like, if you Google me, you can read a lot of personal writing by me about, you know, all kinds of things that have happened in my life. So it's not that I'm, it would be dishonest for me to say I'm a private person because I write about my life. But I think to what Joe was saying earlier, it's like, I don't, I think, and I think women writers have experienced this for a long time, this assumption that like, oh, women, they just put their thoughts on paper, that there's, that there's no deliberation or craft behind it. Like Knausgaard is a genius, but you know, Rachel Cusk is just, you know, putting her thoughts down on paper. There's a, definitely a gendered um, sexist framework for how we talk about Autofiction, for instance. So I want my poems to be looked at it as as pieces of art as as works of, you know, works of craft, not just my jottings in a notebook. And another interesting thing in terms of process is, when I was in my 20s writing poems, um, I never edited them, either they worked or they didn't. And I was afraid that if I touched it, I would ruin the magic. So I never edited. Sometimes I would abandon poems, but that's it. And this was the first book of homes that i really edited and i really worked with my editor was really great um, at soft skull press and i guess i had the confidence to really go back there and and change the language and you know as i said she pushed me to make them less uh didactic and uh soapboxy some of them so that was an interesting lesson to be able to go back and touch them and feel like i wasn't i wasn't ruining these like sandcastles i had built they're just like it's like rage like this is where when i write an op-ed it's because i'm pissed off about something there's something that really bothers me and I feel like I have to talk about it and I think that just works better for opinion pieces than um poems.
1: Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, that's all. no I was I was just going to make the lame observation that that is that's a pattern we see a lot isn't it through through history through all of time the satirists with as you were saying before Adam about that kind of combination of of writing polemical essays and then writing something kind of more abstruse in in poetic form, and I think also like Andrew Doyle talked about that as well, didn't he? That you know sometimes it's sometimes you just want to write your opinion, and sometimes satire is a is a vehicle for kind of doing that in a slightly different way, in a more well, not that. Not that journalism isn't edited, but <laughs> it's a different different kind of editing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think we, after we spoke to you last time, um, I wasn't sure whether to listen to you on other podcasts before we spoke to you or wait till after because I didn't want to spike it. So when we listened to the Speakable podcast, which we're both now huge fans of, thanks to listening to your episode, so thank you for that we realized that we should have asked you to read something out for us. Oh, uh, should
1: I read a poem? And we wondered if you'd read a poem. Would you, would you mind? Yeah. That would be oh, yeah.
2: Should I read the Tiger
1: King one, since we talked about it? Yeah. Or any any that you want, but yeah, Tiger King might work really well.
2: Okay, so the, the beginning of the poem is a quote from Lori Moore, and she wrote, I sometimes find President Trump's voice reassuring, not what he says, not the actual words. The caged tigers are hungry for whatever you have, Walmart meat past its expiration date, a sickly calf, short story master, Lori Moore. She was asking for it when she confessed his voice soothes her like she's his pet. The cage tigers don't care about your contributions to arts and letters that you sit in a distinguished chair you built on the grounds of your personal exotic animal park. They just want to eat. It's been weeks since anyone threw a juicy thought crime into their pen. One of the older tigers who's been too busy birthing cubs to keep up with her New Yorker subscription might need a younger tiger to explain how we're starving for someone to blame for our broken systems. We'd cancel a baby if it gave us five seconds of relief. In one story, Lori Moore offers a cure for depression. Stop drinking, stop smoking, stop eating sugar, cut out caffeine. Do this for three days, she writes, then start everything back up again. Bam.
0: Thank you so much. That's so good. That oh, worked so well. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I guess that's the end of our questions. Thank you.
2: All right. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you.
1: All right. Thank you
0: both. See you later. Bye-bye. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Lee Stein uh, for the second time there. What about you? I I always enjoy talking to Lee Stein. I mean, she's,
1: No, that was, um, that was so interesting and reignited my um, appreciation of, uh, of poetry, uh, if not of the pandemic. But yeah, yeah. um, And we touched on so many things there, didn't we? But we, there was a brief mention there of of Bo Burnham, wasn't there, which we thought we might just wrap up by talking about a little bit more. So I was only familiar previously with Bo Burnham through his 2018 film Eighth Grade, which I watched a couple of months ago and it's a portrayal of eighth grader Kayla and her, her trials and tribulations in trying to fit in with and realising she doesn't fit in with the rest of her year group and her sort of beautiful but often sad relationship with her father it absolutely destroyed me I don't think I've cried at anything possibly during the whole pandemic as much as I cried at eighth grade but I didn't realize that he had this other string to his bow but yeah in a non-satirical vein if you want some like cathartic crying I do recommend eighth grade.
0: Yeah so Bo, so Bo Burnham is a key, has done a feature-length special on Netflix called Inside which uh, is a comedic feature about the pandemic and basically as he's going mad in the pandemic produces these musical numbers and other sketches and features and then they're all stitched together into this feature-length special which has been very popular I mean I hadn't seen it friend of the podcast Ben Garlick who sometimes makes our theme tunes recommended this to me and has sent me a few clips from it but I hadn't watched it yet but it's very positively reviewed I found one negative bit of drama about this when I was looking on the internet, uh, which, which was interesting. Having spoken to Lee, so it's Slate, perhaps on supplies and Slate found it problematic. And they've released it. They, someone called Leela Loof Burrow on the 23rd of June wrote an article called The Problem with Bo Burnham's Inside. Um, inside the, is the name of the film. And basically, well, this, the, the byline, the subheading is confessional metacomedy doesn't have rules about the obligation to the truth. And basically the article makes the point that you can exaggerate things for comic effect, but the film, this person is asserting that he uh, he exaggerates the impact to which the pandemic affected his mental health so, so that he can get away with doing some of these jokes.
1: Yeah. Which is
0: kind of problematic. But that, that whole question of comedy and confessional was an issue, well, not an issue, but like a, a feature of Lee's poems as well, was not
1: it? Let's just play a brief bit of this, but it's worth noting that this is very visual video mm. uh, which it would be because it's a video so you're not going to get the full um gist of it just by listening to it but let the music play an open window a, novel,
0: a couple holding hands another color. Which bit do you want to talk about? I want to talk about the
1: comments underneath and then I want to talk about him. Okay, so what listeners who haven't seen this before won't have got is that this is accompanied by sort of lots of images that might be said to be sort of stereotypical posts or reels on Instagram. I think it's interesting that it seems to me like the satire is more directed at white women than Instagram is I mean if I were to close read this the first thing I would notice is that white women is repeated more and is dwelt on more than Instagram which is kind of swallowed so it's not really critiquing Instagram talk a bit about that in the context of the the things we were talking about on the interview um but what's really interesting to me looking at the comments below the video is um, a lot of them are appreciative of the of the satire but he's really managed to have his cake and eat it this dude because several people find it incredibly affecting um so we've got comments like i really like that this starts as making fun of a trope but he then creates a very vulnerable character in the middle of the song who just goes through life and enjoying it
2: her favorite photo of her mom The caption says, I can't believe it, it's been a decade since you've been gone,
0: mama I miss you, I miss sitting with you in the front yards.
1: Another comment, I unironically cried at the middle verse about her mom, like it's so cliche and so true at the same time. I love Bo Burnham for making us laugh and cry at the same time. So, says one more person, As someone who lost their mom at 13, I realise this could definitely be read as someone who maybe has a subconscious need to present themselves positively and curate their life to appear perhaps better than it is, almost as a way to reassure their lost parent they're okay, from someone who has definitely spent most of their life chasing an impossible idea of the person they think their mom would have been proud of. So he's actually being fated for creating a recognisable and emotional picture of a daughter's grief.
0: Absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) The whole point of the joke is that I, I, I read it as parodies. So he's parodying someone who would basically perform grief as a way of boasting about the size of their apartment, the stability of their job and their, and their relationship. But then yeah, people and realize- the assumption is
1: that that is a thing a white woman or all white women do. I mean, I've just got to read you this one more comment. My partner's mom recently passed and my dad died when I was young. We just recently got engaged too. Know that I ugly cried in the bathroom listening to this while taking a shit.
0: Yeah, that's- I don't know if just, listening
1: to it made him do the shit or if he was doing it anyway, but yeah. wow. I
0: mean, so just on the sort of, cause I think this leads into the, the point about it focusing specifically on white women. It reminds me, the first thing it reminded me of was a sketch uh, that SNL Live did called Look At My Instagram. Have you seen this sketch? No. So um, it's really, it's not as long as this, it's really short. So they did, it's a parody of the song Look At This Photograph by Nickelback. So, and part of the comedy is the fact that they've made it match absolutely, it matches identically. But that one I think is a parody of Instagram specifically, Mm. like not a parody of white women. Um, So that's from 10 years ago. Can I just play you a little bit of it? Um, Mm -hmm. Just for the sake of comparison.
2: Just a coincidence is also boobs. Everyone look at my feet. Get jealous I'm at the beach. Probably knew I was going there. You saw my plane swing in the air.
0: There's a bit later when she's like, Here's a cute selfie of me in the room where I also poop. So it's that kind of mm. I mean it's 10 years ago now, so this is all quite blase, isn't it, making fun of Instagram for these things? But it's kind of it is but it's not saying this is specifically white women are doing this, it's yeah, saying the things that people do on Instagram.
1: And a lot of those things were what characterized um the previous, but uh, you know, no no less um worthy of examination stock character, the basic bitch, weren't they? So basic bitches drink pumpkin spice lattes. They take photos of their Starbucks cup and autumn leaves falling and their feet and so on. But the the Instagram aspect of being a basic bitch was only, was only one part of it, I think. Whereas this, this is, it seems like it's a comment on white women by discussing in detail what they do on Instagram. And what they do on Instagram seems to reflect, it's not just like, oh, they do this trope and then they do that trope. It's like they kind of, they misunderstand things, they attribute slogans to the wrong people, they their emotions are deliberately hyped up and insincere, and they there's there's something kind of fundamentally a bit iffy about them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, it's clear what he's targeting. Like I have seen these posts.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing that Slate's picking up on is that it it's then framed within this narrative about his own mental health and his own. And I gather, I mean, I don't know much about Bo Brennan, but I gather He's had a you know a bad time of it on the internet previously, and it's sort of so by positioning himself as as someone as a victim basically, he then is in a position where he can talk because that, and this isn't necessarily an approach that I would subscribe to, but there is a version where you can say, well, this is a man using his platform to take the piss out of women, mm. you know um it reminds me a bit of the drag debate doesn't it like Mm -hmm.
1: well it's interesting is it because he's not in drag he's never at any point not himself although he does kind of there are points at which he's moving his body in ways that i don't think are like his normal mannerisms or movements like he'll do sort of a little pout or a um, something with his shoulders that's like he's he's kind of inhabiting a different persona. But I think almost part of the joke, like the bit where he's got the gaffer tape over his mouth, part of the joke is that like he rips it off and it's all like pulling on his beard. Um, yeah. But you know what's really interesting about this that I think loops back to what I was saying in the interview about first person narratives and so on, is that this, from the YouTube comments at least, is not being read as satirizing various tropes of white women's Instagram is being read as, as if there's a singular, like the, like it's about a white woman. This woman has been through some shit and she's lost her parents and people are like trying to find the backstory. So one person said, well, you know what? There's also a mention of a dad. So I think he's dead too. And so this is like really, really heavy, man. And they are making it a story about one person Um, and, you know, Bo has fleshed out the women's character with the story of her still trying to cope with her parents passing. They've made it into a singular narrative about a singular individual. And they're actually pretty much ignoring the the satire on Instagram posts almost consistently, which is really interesting. So, I mean, I I think he is doing satire. But people don't want to read it as such.
0: I think there is another level to his satire as well, which is, and so I mean, there's that line, isn't there, where he's like, "This is look at my coffee mug; it's got a Lord, it's got a Lord of the Rings." Lord quote. of the Rings,
1: disguised as misattributed yeah. to Martin Luther King.
0: Yeah, and there's bits later when he's talking about that sort of lifting up these easy slogans and stuff. And in another song that's in there called "Welcome to the Internet," I think the the object of that song is very, it's quite, is a funny song. And the sort of the comedy in it is that he's mashing different things up and you get the bathos of, yeah. of one thing, next to another, um, w- which you get on the Internet. And there's but there's lines in it where he says things like, um, you know, would you like to fight for civil rights or tweet a racial slur? Be happy, be horny, be bursting with rage. We've got a million different ways to engage. Welcome to the Internet. And then he says, there's not a test. You just need to nod or shake your head and we'll do the rest. I mean, the, it, it goes on and on. I think that is quite, I, I'm quite taken with it, that song and its lyrics. But I think the point, the object of the satire is that this is a hellscape built, uh, built on engagement. The business model is engagement. The internet will do whatever it needs to generate that engagement because that's how it makes revenue. And the result of that is this, yeah, this hellscape of juxtapositions and contradictions, which is damaging. And in the middle of that song, he pauses and said it wasn't always like this. Like when they invented the internet the idea was that you could have all of knowledge in your hand and it was aspirational and then he does this maniacal laugh for about two minutes because that's not how it worked out so I mean I think there is there is a more specific target when you view the thing as a whole but yeah the, the white women thing I find I do find it a bit I find it uncomfortable
1: yeah I mean I've I've seen I've seen posts comparable to this from people who are neither white nor women so that you know that it isn't limited to one particular group but I suppose that's not really the point it's the initial point I thought was like well, perhaps is interesting that that this is the group that's the most frequent target of satire right now um whether yes. it's for their instagrams or for them losing their ragging because they're karens or whatever but then Boy. that is also massively complicated by the fact that Everyone on YouTube seems to agree it's a delicate and sensitively realised um, analysis of grief, loss, and um, despair. I think
0: mean, I mean, that's really frightening.
1: Just l- pulling
0: out the lyrics from the "Welcome to the Internet" song, it is this is quite good. It goes, um, <clears> "Tell <throat> tell us every thought you think, start a rumor by a by a broom, or send a death threat to a boomer, or DM a girl and groomer, do a zoom or find a tumor in your in you." Here's a healthy breakfast option you should kill your mom here's why women never fuck you here's how you build a bomb which power ranger are you take this quirky quiz obama sent the immigrants to vaccinate your kids i mean it's quite wow. like it's working quite well isn't it and um rhyming couplets is popian in its mm. uh position. but yeah no i mean that's the comments on the video really do echo what we were saying about irony being dead isn't it like just there's no scope to read it. And it's so explicitly a joke.
1: I'm now starting to wonder if if we've read it wrongly because there is an insistence that this is about one woman, not lots of women. Although, I mean, well, it is called white women's, not white women's Instagram. But then you could, I think that would still work as a general sort of analysis of the group i don't know I, I don't either we've got it wrong or irony is dead i love how one of the posters um explicitly says she unironically cried at the middle verse like how do you cry ironically <laughs> can you cry ironic tears i don't think you can
0: yeah i'm mean, so beau burnham the one occurrence of death in the special comes at a particularly unexpected moment at white woman's instagram White women's Instagram is a satirical tune about all the shallow and clout chasing images that pop up on basic white women's Instagram accounts. This is on Den of Geek. The song covers pretty much everything you'd expect, blah, 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 blah. Midway through the song, however, the content takes a hard left to the stunningly real and heartbreakingly empathetic. The lens of Burden's camera, which has been arranged into an narrow frame to resemble that of a cell phone widens back and we get the lyric, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then the frame, that's the quotes from the song. Then the frame closes back to the Instagram format and the song moves right along to the next bit of white woman nonsense, a goat cheese salad. Burnham is not breaking the fourth wall here. By all indications, both of his parents are still alive, well and supportive of him. An earlier song in the special details the comedian trying to have a FaceTime call with them. So what? So what, why is that?
1: Well, okay, so Bo Burnham is clearly a complex individual, I think we can say, and maybe there is some pathos in this and maybe he's managing to satirise some of the most familiar and hackneyed tropes of Instagram use and at the same time to point to the idea that sometimes behind all of those basic images there might lie an equally complex troubled and distraught individual but is the way to suggest that to to satirise everything she does hmm
0: So this article concludes, while Burnham has a sophisticated artistic vocabulary to occasionally express himself through, the vast majority of his peers merely have totems and some kind honest words. In the case of this white woman, all she has that's real is a nice photo of her mum and the stark, unvarnished truth that she misses her. So it's the point that, yeah, like you were saying, sincerity sometimes creeps through on Instagram and you get a real moment of profound trauma.
1: Or is it that behind everyone who looks like a basic bitch on Instagram there is something sincere and real and capable of hurt and feeling? And I mean Mm. that trope of like the influencer behind whom there is something more complicated is one that that you see in I think isn't the one in like inside number nine and well and and obviously self-care that there are there is precedent for that. But it just Mm. I just feel like then you'd maybe call it like Jenny's Instagram. Yeah, but then it but it's such an obvious joke
0: because she, the person is saying, "I miss you, Mum, Here's all my stuff." It's like, that's the joke, isn't it? That's what is happening in the video. It's a... I have to watch the whole film, don't no, we? Clearly, have to watch the whole film.
1: Yeah, I don't know. So, seems to me what we've learned from watching that is that. Uh, Everyone takes something different from Bo Burnham's White Women's Instagram. Um, yeah. Whatever people thought they were, when the people who sent the links to Lee, whatever they thought that um, that she would get from it and yeah. whatever the YouTube... Well, you know what, maybe at the beginning of the last episode we were right, don't read the comments.
0: That's true, yeah, yeah. So whatever people at home think listening to this, go away, watch Bo Burnham's White Women's Instagram. And uh, let us know, are we heartless satirists who see comedy in tragedy or?
1: Have we just read it wrong? Have we just made a colossal interpretive mistake? I'd, it would be somewhat concerning if so, but.
0: Yeah. So please do let us know. So remember, listeners, if you listen to both parts of this discussion with Lee and there's two things you've got to let us know. Are we wrong about Bo Burnham and White Woman's Instagram? And also which of us should write a satirical poem? Please send yeah. your answers to satire no more at gmail.com or hit us up on twitter at satire no more or instagram at talk about satire
1: yes oh we've got to got to there already and um, yeah just let us know if you if you have any thoughts if you have any requests if you if you've been impacted affected or dented in any way by any of the things that we've talked about we'd love to hear from you
0: yeah and um is there anything else you'd like to talk about joe
1: i don't think there is is there no. anything else you'd like to talk about
0: I feel like we've covered a lot and uh, I need to go away and think about this Barry Burnham video because because uh, it, it's just, yeah, the evidence overwhelmingly. If you base it purely on what people say on the internet seems to be against my easy interpretation that this is just a joke. Hmm. So Thank you again to Lee Stein. You can follow Lee at at rhymes with B on Twitter. You should order, pre-order a book.
1: What to miss when?
0: Yeah, whilst you're on there, why not buy self-care? And her comedy campus novel, um, The Fallback Plan. Like, Brian Moore, She's great.
1: Yeah. Read the op-eds, because we've told you what an op-ed is now. There's no excuse.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, join us again in September. Yes. For a new beginning.
1: If there's anybody you think it would be good for us to talk to, or anything you want us to talk about, then you could hit us up about that as well. But for now.
0: But for now, sit up. Shut up. And eat.
1: Our. satire. Bye. Bye. And if you can't tell why that satire is better than the other satire, go stand outside in the corridor until you do.